Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Acting Up for the last hour. And I believe there are going to be more and more and more Acting Up. They've got 45 years of Acting Up to keep keeping them going. This is Jan Bartlett. I'll be here until 6 o'clock with Tuesday Home Time. Today, speeches from the CICD, that's the Campaign for International Cooperation Disarmaments, 60th anniversary celebrations which were held at the Melbourne Unitarian Church on the 10th of November, including John Lloyd, Marion Harper, Bruce McPhee, Joan Coxidge and Joe Camilleri amongst the speakers. Also, the coup in Bolivia. I'll be speaking to journalist, author and activist Fred Fuentes. And I'll also be speaking with community activist Joan Coxidge about her monthly talk about world events. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had a week of events. A weak journalist, when although, unlike so many of his co-results of the parliamentary democratic process seated around him in Canberra, to whom the great truths of the meaning of life have been revealed, big economic guru Josh Prydem Icebergs does not believe in the dear baby Jesus. Nonetheless, his Yahweh has revealed the meaning of life to him. Work for the corporate boardrooms and the deserving shareholders till you drop, till we drop. We see the ageing of the population as an opportunity, Josh said, or as our great corporate masters, the US of the UN of the US of the world would say, opportunity, make a killing, speaking of work till we drop. We oldies have joined lazy avaricious workers and evil unions and climate change crap warmists as the dangerous threat to the economy and therefore to life as we know it. As a government committed to freedom of choice, oldies whose bludging selfishness threatens our critical budget surplus have the freedom of choice to work and be useful contributors to corporate society or starve. It's their choice. Uh, so they're receiving money raised to provide services you don't plan to spend on services, Josh. Look, put simply, a government surplus is far, far more important than a few starving pensioners. And I believe you wouldn't find anyone who would disagree with that in any boardroom in this great country of equal opportunity. Although the dear baby Jesus revealed Israel allow the Lord's infallible climate science that extreme weather events happening in a rush are down to the wrath of God. Well, it must be because it was God who revealed it to him. And matching Israel's incontestable theological science this week was his partner in evangelical truth, big supremo scuttled them more lashed than himself, who said it was scientifically incontestable. There was nothing a true blue Aussie government could have done to prevent the incendiary fury of the past couple of weeks. And we have to agree up to a point because the proof was in the pudding as Scuttle then put his science to the test. He did nothing and the incendiary fury exploded. 
Thankfully, the chainsaw the forest industry has found the solution to Victorian bushfires as it condemns the state government for giving it only another 11 years to destroy state forests, the industry's God-given right to public assets. Stopping logging would lead to fire, 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 incendiary destruction of the forests, a spokesperson warned. So there's the solution, a bit of sensible lateral thinking. If there's no trees to burn, no trees will burn. Trees are the problem. Clear the forests and they'll be safe. To prove Israel's science that God is very, very angry, angry God events happening in a rush, the meteorological spokesperson told us Thursday's dreadful statewide weather was a once in a million year or once in a something or other event. And we wouldn't expect such disastrous conditions until, well, a million years or something or other, I hear. No, no, till Monday, he said, although now they say it mightn't happen until later in the week. Proving Israel's and scuttle them science. As I watch the calamitous weather conditions that are now the norm, am I sorry I voted for same-sex marriage, especially seeing I don't believe much in marriage anyway. It just increases the cost of the divorce. No, no, that, that's too cynical. On marriage, divorce, and associated matters like sex, the PR super success, my word, that worked well story of the week, has to go to the giant mind who decided Her Most Gracious Majesty's son, and Screws, should do his warts and all interview, after which it would all go away. And hasn't that worked a treat? Anne Screw's sense of right and wrong, honed in the inbred world of the world's largest family of doll bludgers and hangers-on, was highlighted by his knowledge that seducing and abetting underage sex by a gang of older lectures was unbecoming, part of Anne Screw's becoming an even bigger, bigger pariah than he already was. Uh, unbecoming, which, despite what many might consider proof to the contrary, Anne Screws had nothing to do with. He was not one of the older lectures. He was just there, presumably watching it all. And he can't for the life of him remember ever meeting the young woman he has photographed with his arm around who alleges she was forced by his great mate, the lecture organiser, to have sex with and screws. Look, it's her word against a member of our ruling family, so case closed. Although for poor Anne Screws, it just might open. And his great mate, the lecture, has conveniently died in the cell, so he can't face a bit of cross-examination about all this. But on that dull budget bit, maybe we're misrepresenting that lot, because by week's end, the That Worked a Treat interview led to Anne Screws announcing he would discontinue his, quote, work in the interests of his inbred family, which should make a major difference to the world generally, because I have absolutely no idea what in his case work is. Oh my work, I prince and mummy queens and daddy dukes. And he sacrificed his work so his family could continue its work, raising the same question. In the end we have to conclude the interview was unbecoming. Sometimes it's best to just keep your mouth shut. Now, when sprung roughly once a day, give or take in their case, no give and all take, they always assure us they will take all steps to redress that for which they were sprung and about which they had no idea. It was the cleaning woman at some local branch, if there's any local branches left, press button C. 
we understand the gravity of the issues and reiterate our deepest sorrow for failings by worse pack. We are determined to urgently, urgently fix, we'd think an automatic response would sort out a split infinitive, wouldn't we anyway, to urgently fix these issues and lift our standards to ensure our anti-money laundering and other financial crime processes are industry leading. As a major bank, we play a critical role in helping law enforcement agencies prevent criminals from carrying out illegal activity. Uh, but, but you'd be preventing yourself. You're the criminal. We put the worst back chair, Lindsay Maximise Profitstead. In some special circumstances, would play a critical role in not helping law enforcement agencies. Anyway, with Worstpack sprung for a few million problems, including facilitating child sexual exploitation, with US of big supremo Donald Trample the poor under fire for making Ukraine an offer it couldn't refuse, Zion big supremo Benjamin not another Yahoo for alleged corruption, involving our very own crook casino King Jamie Puker, Benjamin's next-door neighbour and close, close, close friend, Jamie himself over a few problems down at the casino and, and screws in a bit of strife. With all that, we can understand why the government knows the most urgent legislation to address gross evil and criminality, illegal activity, to quote Lindsay, is the smash the evil unions and evil workers bill. That's real criminality. The others are just doing their job, or in Anne Screw's case, his work. What's a few million contributions to child exploitation or being a participant in it? Not that we're suggesting Anscrews was, or threatening a country unless it supports your re-election campaign, or continuing to take over more of other people's land to which they fled as refugees when you threw them out of their country in the first place, compared to entering a workplace illegally, for instance, just because there's a bit of a danger to workers like death or serious injury. There's simply no comparison. On insignificant matters like corporate corruption, which is most of, which is sort of a tautology, remember during the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Banking Commission, a bloke called Terry McMaster Crime collapsed in the witness box as a few questionable habits by his financial advisory company were put to him. Suggestions it was financial bad advisory for the client, but good advisory for Terry. Well, this week, he was found guilty in the federal court for engaging in misleading and deceptive conduct, sentence pending. Don't worry, he plans to take action over that. He wants to sue his lawyer, presumably for losing the case. On taking other people's land, U.S. Ops Secretary for World U.S. Ops State Mike Pompeo or else declares the U.S. Ops no longer regards the taking of as illegal settlements because he said regarding them as illegal has not helped the peace process. Peace process, that's news in itself. Anyway, we look forward to Mike giving us a slightly more detailed explanation for that logic, although we imagine the U.S. Ops will now impose sanctions on any country that can continues to regard them as illegal. Finally, good to know there is international solidarity in matters that matter. Take this opposition rally in Zimbabwe to hear the opposition leader where the 
so, sorry, the police attacked those attending the rally violently. Because like protest here, holding an opposition rally is now illegal. Although they claimed it wasn't illegal, but they were forced to attack it violently because they were afraid, wait for it, it could turn violent. That's what they said. No embellishment. Well, it certainly did. But isn't it encouraging to know in an evil, sinful world suffering the wrath of God, some things are constant. The forces of law and order, those who protect the means of production, are the same the world over. It's comforting, isn't it? Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And in case you were wondering that that noise on the the line for the last five minutes or so was, it was heavy rain on the roof going right through the, the phone line from Mr Kevin Healy, who you'll be able to hear minus the rain hopefully tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with the program City Limits. Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my prosecco. Out on patio. This year's delicious radical radio wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. CICD, Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament, is Australia's longest running peace movement and believes that negotiations and peaceful settlement of disputes is preferable to the carnage of armed conflict. CICD is a long-time member of 3CR, broadcasting alternative news every Sunday at 9.15, and on the 10th of November celebrated its 60th anniversary, a celebration of active campaigning in peace, nuclear disarmament, social justice and much more. This was held at the Melbourne Unitarian Church in East Melbourne and there were a number of speakers at the event. What follows are some of the peace activists who spoke, beginning with John Lloyd, a former secretary of CICD. In 1959 I was in fact a fresh-faced, very naive, first-year theological student and a controversy arose during that year because the principal of the theological college, whose name was Lyle Williams, uh, signed a very controversial sponsorship statement sponsoring the ANZ Congress for International Cooperation and Disarmament that was to be held in November. And um, uh, this created quite a lot of consternation in the church that I belonged to because uh, uh, it was a very uh, dubious thing for someone a religious leader to be doing. As a, as a consequence of uh, some clergyman's involvement in the ANZ Congress and as a, a result of the fact that the Congress was having difficulty being given public halls to conduct their uh, uh, events in, 
because councils one by one were closing down because of the controversy uh, about the Congress and so they were closing uh, the doors on uh, renting public halls. And so the group of clergymen said, well, how about if we go and we ask to uh, rent the halls? Will they knock us back? And, of course, they did not knock the clergymen back. The clergymen rented the halls, gave them to the Congress, and away they went. Uh, so a little, little bit uh, of subterfuge there. That group, actually, uh, that group of clergymen became known as the Peace uh, Quest Forum. And the name Forum, of course, related to the fact that they were providing access to a forum uh, for the Congress. And um, later on, probably six or seven years later, I emerged out of my very conservative background and I joined the Peace Quest Forum. And that is how I got to know the Reverend Elf Dickey and Frank Hartley. And they told me that... Uh, CICD was looking for someone to become secretary when they knew that I was leaving the church so they, um, they suggested I go and meet Sam Goldblum and hey presto, I got the job. But I remained very naive and when uh, in my first uh, uh, period at the CICD in the little beehive building in Elizabeth Street where you risk your life going in the lift up to the seventh floor um, in that building, uh, there were some wonderful people who took care of me, and Margaret Fraser, Mary Soulsby, a number of other uh, women, and um, uh, a number of men as well, um, uh, were very good to me. Also, uh, Bruce was there uh, later on, and uh, Pauline, and, um, and a vast number of volunteers who Margaret Fraser could bring them up and... In a flash, they would be in there in pre-email days sending out mass mailings. I think it was very hard on their tongue. Uh, <laughs> the stamps, the backs of the envelopes and so on. They were a great team and vital to the success of uh, the organisation. The office bearers, when I started there, were Alf Dickey, I think, was chairman. Um, I think Sam might have been a vice president, I'm not sure. Um, uh, Frank Hartley, Sam Goldblum, Dorothy Gibson, Joe Kears, Leslie Ebbles, Norman Rothfield and, and a number of others, uh, but my ageing brain can't do the job. What was also vital to the organisation was the network of uh, suburban peace groups. Uh, what a treasure they were and um, people were available to take things out from the, uh, from the centre and make them very local. And it was a great... Uh, political uh, activist uh, uh, structure. So what were the campaigns? Well, I'm just picking three campaigns to talk about today or, or three facets of our organisation. There was the nuclear disarmament issue. Um, we did keep up the tradition of that Hiroshima Day uh, activity for many, many years. It had started well before I was there. Um, and in 1972... Uh, I think it was 72, you'll remember that there were French testing, French were testing in the Pacific, nuclear testing, and um, uh, we got together a group to go to Tahiti to stamp our foot and to knock on their doors and to demand uh, an, uh, an end to nuclear testing in the Pacific. Uh, so the group uh, consisted of uh, Jim Cairns, who by then I think was president of the CICD, uh, 
we, this was the first sort of really activist thing that Helen Caldercott did. We rang her and asked her to join. And, and there was the AUS and some other groups as well who were going to go to the Tahiti. And we went to Sydney Airport and Gough Whitlam was there to see us off. And uh, just as we were about to get on the plane, a Qantas official came along with a telegram saying, the French have refused permission for the following people to disembark at Tahiti. Dr Cairns, uh, Helen Caldercott, John Lloyd and Ken Newcomb. And so some of them actually still were able to go because they, they were not named on the list. Uh, and the others uh, went to Paris uh, to knock on doors there. I was afraid of the expense and I stayed home. Um, <laughs> Uh, but that was a, a, a very interesting event and it gave another opportunity to uh, put before the Australian public who were not sympathetic to French nuclear testing in the Pacific by any means to put the case again. Uh, another feature of our uh, activity in those days was to bring in speakers from overseas. For some reason, they got much better attention from the media than homegrown locals having, having the same message. So uh, we would invite speakers from overseas, they'd step off the plane, there'd be this gang of the press in front of them and they'd be sh the, the overseas guests would be amazed. <laughs> Who am I? I'm just an academic from a back university. No, but in, in Australia they were stars and they had some great important messages to bring. I remember particularly enjoying the visits of Schiller and Whittaker, uh, academics, Tam Delyell, who was a, uh, a British parliamentarian, who was on to the fact that he believed that chemical and biological warfare was testing, was happening in Australia. They were testing weapons up in the jungle. And uh, he came out here, I think possibly at his own expense, but we sponsored him on, on a national tour and uh, he brought, drew attention to that. Uh, Michael Barrett-Brown, who became the kind of father of the fair trade uh, movement, was one of the overseas speakers and a, the, the most famous of them all was Dr Benjamin Spock. One person who did not come was Dick Gregory, the American comedian. The Australian government refused to give him a, fee, a visa at the height of the Vietnam War and Dick made this classic statement when he said, what's the Australian government afraid of? I'm harmless, I'm just a vegetarian pacifist. <laughs> uh, of course, the highlight of uh, the, the, the period when I was uh, secretary uh, was the uh, Vietnam moratorium. Uh, we had been involved in the July 4 demonstrations for years. We'd set up, well, we'd worked with the, uh, the Committee in Defiance of the National Service Act uh, and then immediately, I think the day after the uh, massive American moratorium rally, uh, particularly in Washington, which had hundreds of thousands of people uh, in the, the sacred uh, halls of uh, Washington. Uh, the day after that, I think we had a CICD meeting in Elizabeth Street and uh, a couple of us got together and said, do, do you think we can, after the meeting, we said, do you think we can do that here? A great mass of people from the cross-section of the society uh, we'll make it non-violent, we'll, we'll use the same word, the moratorium, we'll, we'll build on it and try and get a massive demonstration on, on the streets. And so away we went. I think first, firstly we went to, uh, to Canberra and got all ALP caucus members except the leader and deputy leader 
to sign the statement of support for the Vietnam moratorium with the non-violent clauses in it. Uh, and then uh, we set up the process which led to the Richmond Town Hall meetings and we were so fortunate to have the leadership of Jim Cairns because he brought together not only the intellectual strength but he, brought, he, he wielded a sense of democracy through the whole uh, Operation and those meetings at the Richmond Town Hall, they might have seemed like chaos, but everybody had their chance and it was a, a, an amazing experience for all of us who were involved. Um, so, so we were fortunate to have his leadership. Uh, when, of course, the uh, moratorium did actually finally take place uh, and we had anticipated that we might have 20,000, 30,000 people, wouldn't that be great? Uh, and finally on the day uh, it just swept us all away and it was, for the Australian public at large, it was, whoo, this is big, what, what is going on? There has been a change in the tide of public, public opinion. So it, it was a big and important event and, of course, it wasn't so long after that that there was a change of government, the withdrawals of troops were underway and uh, I think... The moratorium played a very important part in Australian history uh, in that day and, and the legacy lasts till today. And I think CICD was absolutely central. It may have happened if CICD hadn't taken the initiative, but we were there, we took the initiative and um, it, it was just a great event that CICD can be proud of. CICD has much to be proud of about its whole history and it has the right, I think, to shout its success and its events from the treetops because uh, the Australian public needs to know that there are people who have had a long-term commitment to peace and disarmament and, and are still working faithfully to try and achieve it, no matter what the odds. So I wish you well in your future. I commend the, the CICD for its ongoing activism and say congratulations and best wishes. The speaker there was John Lloyd, a former secretary of CICD. Next, Marion Harper from the Melbourne Unitarian Church. I'd like to warmly commend the CICD for a memorable birthday. Um, I wasn't involved very much with the CICD. My work in the peace movement was more with the Victorian Peace Council and so I was pleased that John Lloyd mentioned Frank, Victor and Alf who were the three very brave ministers who stood up to their own congregations in order to work for the peace movement and, and a tribute to them also. Of the past 3,400 years of human history, humans have been entirely at peace only for 268 days of them. <laughs> years, sorry, years. That is just 8% of recorded history. When I was a child, we used to think that we lived in a peaceful world and every so often there was a war. But in fact, the opposite is true. We live in a world of war that's interspersed with periods of peace. At least 108 million people were killed in the wars in the 20th century alone. 108 million people. The First World War, which the ruling classes of the UK, the US and Australia so eulogise, was clearly a, mark, a war for markets 
and had nothing to do with the defence of the people of those nations involved. A market war which cost millions of working people their lives unnecessarily and for profit. Death manufacturers like Lockheed Martin remain as the world's largest arm producer in 2017 with arm sales of 44.9 billion. Imagine what the world could do with 44.9 billion of peaceful development. It is abundantly clear, however, that we will never have peace under the capitalist system because capitalism is based on greed and competition for markets and it is from this very premise that wars arise. So our role, it seems to me, in the peace movement is to expose capital and its naked greed if we want to achieve world peace. There is no other way. We know from the sterling work carried out by the CICD and the Victorian Peace Council during the difficult days of the Cold War and the wars following that peace is elusive and has simply become a period between wars of imperialist aggression. That there are two kinds of wars is unarguable. There are just and unjust wars and we need to be very clear in the peace movement what the stand of the peace movement is on that premise. Wars of national liberation, the struggle by the people for freedom from colonialism, imperialism and capitalist terrorism and from economic tyranny are wars that need to be supported around the world where people rise up in opposition to poverty and exploitation and for freedom from imperialist imperialist domination, then they must be supported. However, we need to be very careful in examining even those struggles to ensure that they're not initiated by the very enemy we're all opposing. Imperialism will utilise any struggle for democracy and turn it into struggle for another form of oppression. Socialism is the only answer, in my opinion, to the world's problems, but it needs to be genuine socialism and not some bourgeois concept of socialism. To claim that one stands for peace is a warm, fuzzy-sounding claim, but that peace needs to mean something. For example, a period of peace free from war may not necessarily be freedom from oppression. Indeed, that oppression can increase in times between wars. So those who genuinely support peace need to examine the causes of war. Who are the warmongers? What is their role? And we need to be courageous in calling out those who claim to support peace but who support their own nation in times of war in the name of patriotism. We need to be alert and we need to be objective. So congratulations to all those who keep up the fight for peace and to expose the nature of capitalism and imperialism because we're on the winning side. You're listening then to Marianne Harper from the Melbourne Unitarian Church. Next to Bruce McPhee, who was an early broadcaster on Alternative News on 3CR. Thank you for the opportunity to join you today because uh, CICD uh, is an organisation that's meant a great deal to me for most of my life, most of my adult life, and to you people as well. And for me, my fondest memories of CICD has always been the people, Uh, so many people, well-known people and less well-known people, but it's been the people that I met that uh, has been in my mind. And my first introduction, everyone has their own stories about how they came to 
political awareness or to CICD. In my case, it was the Vietnam War when I was a young high school student. And for some reason, I, I, I became really very concerned about what I saw on the television screens every night of the Vietnam War. Our family were prior to the Cold War period and we didn't talk about politics, but eventually I was introduced to the Vietnam moratorium campaign thanks to a uh, school teacher who gave us the uh, broadsheet from the Vietnam moratorium campaign. And then my whole life changed because my gut feelings of concern about the, the war in Vietnam were now expressed by uh, a range of people from the community, people who were well known, politicians, church people, historians, scholars, and I realised I wasn't alone. So that's what brought me into the campaign to support the uh, first moratorium. And of course from that I got to know a lot of CICD people and I very quickly learnt from them and it was very inspired by them. So that's why I joined CICD. The previous speakers have said many of the things which I also want to say about how important CICD is, I think, as an organisation that can bring together a very wide cross-section of the community. And that's, that was important then for me and it's important, I think, in the future. Around the room we see many of the campaigns that uh, many of them I had some participation in. So uh, you can learn more about them. And one of those mentioned is the alternative news on, in the beginning, 3ZZ, the first access radio station in Australia. So thanks to the ABC and the Whitlam government, we had the first opportunity for ordinary people from different ethnic groups to ha have their access to the airwaves. And from the very beginning, CICD was involved with the uh, producing of the English language program Alternative News and we're also on the English Language Program Committee. And the program became very popular, I think partly because we covered a wide range of issues that perhaps were not so easy to uh, get alternative viewpoints on the radio. And that program started on 3ZZ and then when 3ZZ closed, continued on 3CR. My participation was fairly short. Others carried on the show after me and I'm pleased to see that it's still continuing with CICD thanks to Romina and others. So Vietnam obviously was the catalyst for me to become involved uh, but then many other issues of nuclear disarmament, bases etc were very much part of CICD. But for the last 22 years or so I've actually been living and working in Vietnam for a travel company. Although the country has incredibly developed from those terrible times of the war and if you travel in Vietnam today you can easily be forgiven for thinking there never was a war. You could walk around and you see a modern developing prosperous country but the, the consequences of the war are still going on and if you are there long enough or care to look uh, the consequences of the war are still suffering um, people there. And so that's maintained my concern about war in general uh, ever since. And so, for example, in Vietnam, they're still dealing with unexploded bombs, unexploded ordnance, landmines, that are injuring um, people on a, almost a weekly basis in not just Vietnam but Cambodia and Laos as well. 
the issues of Agent Orange, the chemicals, uh, various chemicals used by the US military in the war. And millions of people uh, are suffering today from birth defects, cancers and other illnesses connected to the use of chemicals, which was the worst chemical warfare uh, attack in uh, human history. About nearly 100 million litres of toxic chemicals ironically sprayed on the southern part of Vietnam, which we were told were our friends, hence the propaganda of the war. Also, many of the American soldiers who were participating in the war became anti-war from that experience. And today, they are doing incredible work to help with the um, humanitarian relief from the effects of the landmines and the Agent Orange and it's not often well known but in the wartime the US soldiers were very important in the anti-war movement and the resistance within the army from the US military. Uh, at the moment in Vietnam there's, a, there's an exhibition at the War Remnants Museum in Saigon called Waging Peace in Vietnam. It's a book and uh, an exhibition travelling at the moment it's about to open in the uh, US as well. US soldiers and veterans who opposed the war. This is a wonderful book, a collection of photos and stories from uh, such soldiers. So often it's the soldiers who are the most outspoken against war from their experience. And uh, I'm going to donate this book to CICD for your library and for reference. I think you'll find it's very, uh, very nice, very useful books. Since the Vietnam War, of course, the world has had a whole series of wars and uh, conflicts. The Iraq War, and Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and the threat of war in Iran, the war of sanctions, which has become a particularly uh, nasty weapon of war, economic sanctions against ordinary people in many countries. So I've been following these wars and comparing the way they're reported in the mainstream media compared to the alternative media. And the uh, striking thing is that in all these situations, the Australian government and the Australian media has largely come out on the wrong side, on the side of the, the victims of the wars. And I think this is largely a, a result of the effects of the toxic uh, alliance that we have with the United States, the security alliance, which affects everything that we can do here. So that's a challenge. Um, and even when I compare the media, the way they report or don't report what's going on in the world today. Easy to see how people can become apathetic, not involved, uh, distracted, misinformed and confused about what's really going on. So the importance of programs like Alternative News and CICD with their publications continues to be critical, I think. And so uh, my one small contribution that I've tried to do is compare the reporting of such events in the mainstream media with reputable alternative media and then uh, make postings on my blog and on Facebook whereby I can maybe summarise or read like a digest of the material which makes it easier perhaps for people to access an alternative information about conflicts in the world and how to deal with them. CICD has often used some of those postings 
in, the, in their publications and I invite anyone who wants to access uh, my blog or my Facebook and to use it as a resource to summarise some of the alternative perspectives on issues of war and peace that still affect us very much today. Also at the back of the room there's um, my little booklet on Vietnam which is free and it's a work in progress so if anyone would like to make suggestions I'm happy to keep changing it and improving it but hopefully that's a collection of background reading that might make the situation in Vietnam and in the world um, a bit more easy to understand. So CITD has played a huge role in my life personally uh, even though I only worked in the organisation for a few years but uh, CITD I think is critically important in being able to bring together people from throughout the community to make the issue, these issues of war and peace up front instead of being hidden. Obviously the people who promote war have an interest in distorting and hiding their crimes and so it's up to us to understand and to expose them and there's many challenges and as well as opportunities. I just made a, a few notes of from observations that are happening at the moment in Australia in particular and in the world. At the moment in Australia there's the media, some of the media has got together with a right to know campaign and this gives an opportunity I think because in all the material I've read in the mainstream media about this I almost never hear the never read the words Julian Assange and Julian Assange I think the case of Julian Assange as an Australian journalist is extremely vital to resolve because uh, it's a precedent for that the, the public won't have the right to know if journalists and whistleblowers can be silenced and the misinformation and demonisation in the media about Julian Assange is deliberate and very dangerous and also the way the media does not accurately report the wars in Syria, in Libya, in Afghanistan, in, Afghanistan, in Iran, in Venezuela, in Iraq, etc, etc. They consistently misreport or don't report at all or lie. shows there is a degree of hypocrisy even within the media but at least the fact that they have a right to know campaign I think gives us an opportunity to participate in that and extend the understanding of what that really means and it should mean protecting journalists and whistleblowers who are exposing war crimes. The other one that's controversial perhaps is the US presidency of Donald Trump. Whatever we may think of Donald Trump, I think it also gives us an opportunity because people are much more engaged in, in political discussion around Donald Trump for one reason or another, for good or for bad. I think we can make a positive contribution uh, in, in that whole debate in terms of questioning the US alliance Many US allies are questioning the reliability of the US as an ally and that's a good thing but the danger is that they see it as partisan and if we get rid of Donald Trump the next one will be okay. So I think our job is to make it very, to understand why it's, uh, the problem of war, imperialist war is bipartisan and this gives an opportunity to really question the role of Australia within the US security alliance especially as we moved from a, a superpower unipolar world to a multipolar world, Australia has to find its own way 
with its friends and its enemies. And the US alliance is obviously something that uh, restricts our independence of policy. And with all these wars and, all, and the reporting of these wars, uh, not only is the media getting it wrong, but I hear so much from Australian politicians which indicate they are either ignorant or deliberately being dishonest. Either way, they need to be educated. And I noticed that with the, um, with the campaign around Julian Assange, for example, there's been a, a cross-parliamentary group of politicians in Australia that are advocating on behalf of Julian Assange. I think the time is right now that we try to form a cross-parliamentary group of parliamentarians for peace, whereby through CICD and others we can educate members of parliament. So when issues come up connecting Australia to war and peace issues, they can at least get some fair debate and some proper informed discussion in the parliament and in the community. And the other one, I think, where we have a great opportunity to become, uh, to, to project the issues of war and peace is with the climate emergency, which is becoming a major uh, movement and general environmental awareness. But what we have to do is uh, acknowledge that militarism, war and preparation for war is one of the key factors in climate change and in the depletion of resources and the pollution of our planet in all sorts of ways. So here's another opportunity where CICD and the peace movement can inject issues of war and peace into the popular movement against climate change and the environment. I'm sure there are others, but as previous speakers have said, yes, CICD has ups and downs. All organisations go through ups and downs. The Vietnam Moratorium campaign was one of our great high points and then the, the Nuclear Free campaign as well. And who knows the future? While there's uh, life, there's hope. So uh, Vietnam, uh, sorry, CICD has made it for 60 years and the needs of uh, the, the world for peace and justice and social equity uh, are only increasing and still very relevant. So I hope that CICD will continue. When we get to the age of around 60, most of us might, might be thinking about retirement or, or planning retirement, but hopefully CICD um, won't be thinking of retirement until the job is done. And that is obviously not in the foreseeable future, but a long time we need to struggle for peace and justice and for equity and common humanity. So I thank you for supporting CICD in one way or another and for coming today and enjoy the uh, social activity together because one of my uh, memories of working with CICD, obviously all the campaigns, um, all the exciting things we did, but some of the most enduring memories are just the social things we did with house meetings, um, even with simple things like putting out the CICD newsletter. In those days it was all done cut and paste with scissors and glue, not with computer keyboards and mouses. And, and mail-outs were all the volunteers coming in, licking envelopes and stamps, you know. Um, now we can put out the newsletter with a few clicks of a computer and off, off it goes into the uh, email. But uh, it's those social activities, I think, which keep an organisation alive and, and keep going. So 
hopefully uh, CISD will have more cages like this where people can get together and discuss issues of common concern and keep struggling for peace, for international cooperation and disarmament until we achieve it. Thank you. The last speaker was Bruce McPhee, former presenter of Alternative News. Joan Coxage is well known to 3CR listeners. She also spoke at the 60th anniversary celebrations of CICD on the 10th of November at the Melbourne Unitarian Church. Some of you might remember with horror that back in 1959 Bob Menzies was Prime Minister back then and still had a few years to run. Well, I first came across uh, CICD in the late 1960s and like some other people in this room, it was during my opposition to the war in Vietnam when various organisations joined forces, some established ones like CICD and some brand new ones like Save Our Sons and the Draft Resisters Union. And that back then, of course, Sam Goldblum was the chair and copped a hell of a lot of flack because it was a very nasty Cold War period, if you like. And today, not many remember those years when a huge opposition was built and the opposition didn't come out of the blue. It came after... God only knows how many fraught meetings, and they were fraught. We didn't think we'd ever reach agreement, but we did, and we did have that fantastic, huge moratorium march that filled up, I think, all of Burke Burke Street in the city. And I became an anti-war activist over the Vietnam War, and I've never stopped being an anti-war activist because war is so destructive and so terrible on countries and on human beings. But the opposition didn't come out of the blue either because back then, every night on our TV, we watched defoliants wrenching and destroying the earth itself. We saw napalm raining down on defenceless human beings and these were reported because journalists back then, they weren't embedded with the military like they are today. So they're not free to report wars today like they were back then. In other words, they learnt their lesson. They weren't going to let them run free. And uh, this was a time also when many of us broke the draconian laws around conscription and we ended up in jail. And that's when you know you live in a class system, if you've got any doubts at all about that one. And I think most of you will agree that today we're living through extraordinarily fraught times where the most powerful man on earth, we're talking about Trump, is an unhinged crook who should be frog-marched into a padded cell along with his equally unhinged advisers. And sadly, as others have said, we're part of the lunacy because of our grovelling relationship with Washington and because of the presence of Pine Gap and Northwest Cape on our soil. It's also worth noting that since it was founded in 1776, the US has been at war for 214 of its 235 years of existence. 
The only time it had five years of relative peace was during its isolationist period during the Great Depression. And I also want to say a few words about Julian Assange, who remains locked up in London's Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison in appalling conditions. Former British ambassador and human rights activist Craig Murray sat through last week's hearing in Westminster's Magistrates Court to hear the charges against Julian. They were specific and they had nothing to do with Sweden, they had nothing to do with sex and nothing to do with the 2016 US election. But everything to do with WikiLeaks, publishing the Iraqi war logs, the Afghani war logs and US State Department cables, all of which exposed massive war crimes committed by the US military and intelligence establishment. Everyone in that court saw one of the greatest journalists in the world and most important dissidents of our time being tortured to death before our eyes, said Craig Murray. This highly articulate man was reduced to a shambling, incoherent wreck. There were five representatives of the US government present in that court, seated directly behind James Lewis, QC and other prosecution lawyers. They huddled together before scurrying out of the courtroom. Lewis admitted that he was taking instructions from those behind, meaning a British judge in a British court was being told what to do by the US Embassy. The magistrate concluded the legal farce by saying that the February hearing would not be held in the relatively open and accessible Westminster Court, but in the grim Belmarsh Magistrates Court where there are only six public seats. British justice should hang its head in shame and so should we for not defending one of our own. So here we are in 2019 facing immense challenges from the onslaught of climate change or more accurately climate catastrophe to the spread of the far-right movements around the globe, to the increased proliferation of nuclear weapons, to our gun-toting police who raid people's homes and offices, to the attacks on unions and workers in general, as well as against the most vulnerable in our society. But the government doesn't give us stuff. One of the worst in living memory, led by a Bible-bashing fundamentalist who believes in Armageddon and intends creating laws to shut us up, which he must not be allowed to get away with, and sadly, a weak opposition. Things should never have been allowed to get to such an extreme situation in the first place. So before we waste one more minute, we have to fight back in every way we can, by words, and actions using organisations like CICD and 3CR and Pax Christi 
and the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society and this church which provides a very important forum for those who want to present alternative views. But we must not be cowed and we must not be silenced. Thank you. Next speaker for the celebration day of CICD is Joseph Camilleri, Professor Emeritus at La Trobe University and actively involved in the Pax Christi movement since 1969. As someone who has been involved over a number of years with uh, different activities, meetings, gatherings, rallies, demonstrations and the like that uh, CICD either organised or participated, it's uh, a great honour and pleasure to be able to join in this celebration of the 60th anniversary of CICD. I have not been involved with CICD from the beginning. Uh, I think uh, it started somewhere around uh, 73, 74, soon after I returned from three years in England, which meant that I missed the excitement of the Vietnam Moratorium days in which CICD played such an important role. But I knew from the early to mid-70s that CICD had the capacity uh, to attract all kinds of people different age groups, trade union people, church people, people involved in the arts uh, and many other areas. And yes, it's true, in the eyes of some, CICD was regarded as a rather radical organisation, certainly at the height of the Cold War. Uh, But really, on reflection, uh, it was a very measured organisation, Uh, that always thought carefully behind each statement and each activity uh, that it would maximise its effectiveness and its resonance uh, with the wider Australian public. And as I got to know more and became involved in some of the activities and um, uh, was uh, very privileged... Uh, to get to know the likes of Sam Goldblum and Joe Keirs and the CICD organisers, secretaries and so on. In the late 70s, some of you will know, somewhere around 1979, I approached them to see whether we might be able to do something. Uh, I was wearing a Pax Christi hat at the time. Uh, Whether we might be able to do something in relation to the deteriorating nuclear situation around the globe, the intensified Cold War, and the increasing threat of the use of nuclear weapons. And at this initial meeting, I remember it very clearly, it was basically a handful of Pax Christi people, CICD people, and one or two others, about ten or a dozen, meeting in a private home. And I put to them the idea uh, that we might be able in Australia to begin to emulate the massive nuclear disarmament movement uh, in Europe. And I could see the very sceptical eyes of most of the people present in that room. But I want to acknowledge that nevertheless, sceptical though they were that this could really take off in Australia or in Victoria, or in Melbourne, uh, they were prepared to give it a go. And CICD became 
one of the stalwarts, one of the two or three stalwarts that made people for nuclear disarmament possible all the way through, for the best part of a decade. Uh, the movement, the coalition, the organisation, and I think it's not sufficiently well remembered, that brought together not just more than 100,000 people four times in a row in Melbourne, not done before or since, and emulated in many other cities around the country. But more importantly, I think, than that, it helped with the establishment of 110 local groups and 325 affiliated organisations. Of course, very important things happened as part of this global movement. Of course, CRCD went through its highs and lows, as do all organisations that last for a significant period of time. And even after fatigue set in, after the uh, collapse of the Cold War system, uh, when some people thought uh, the uh, victory had been won, which was rather a foolish thing to think, CRCD continued. And I remember very distinctly the very significant conference that uh, we helped to organise, CICD and a number of other groups, in 1990, uh, called ASPAC. Uh, remembering uh, that there was still a long way to go, not least in the Asia-Pacific region. We all know that CICD is perhaps smaller than it used to be, uh, that, like many other peace groups, it is ageing, uh, but I remain firmly convinced that the need for it today in Aust the Australia of 2019 is as great as it was when it was established uh, in 1959. And so I hope that it will not only continue to exist and be active for many years to come, certainly as long as the threat continues in its many forms, militarisation as well as nuclearisation, uh, but that it will be able to bring together a growing number of people uh, from diverse backgrounds and diverse age groups. So I hope that we can all contribute to making that happen and to ensuring that CICD continues stronger than ever before. Thank you. You've been listening to Professor Emeritus Joseph Camilleri one of the many speakers at the recent 60th anniversary celebrations of CICD, the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament, who present alternative news here on 3CR every Sunday morning at 9.15. It's just after 5 o'clock here at 3CR. Food and rebellious feminism. Keen to meet like-minded feminists passionate about overhauling the system? Want to revel in the global uprisings led by women? Celebrate highlights of 2019 with Radical Women. Swap ideas of what still needs to be done. Find out Radical Women's plans for early 2020 and get involved. Sunday, December the 8th, 5pm at the Solidarity Salon, 580 Sydney Road, Brunswick. All genders welcome. Phone 03-9388-0062 for more information. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter.
On Thursday 28th of November at 12pm, environment groups and communities from across Victoria will peacefully rally together at Parliament to call for urgent action for our natural world. After five years of the Andrews government, nature deserves more, especially in the face of climate change. Victorians need new and better funded national parks, stronger nature laws and better protection for our threatened forests, rivers, beaches, oceans and native plants and animals. We need real action for our natural places and wildlife now. Join in the Nature for Life rally. Bring a sign to highlight the natural places you love that deserve better protection. See you on Parliament Steps, Thursday 28th of November at 12pm. Look for Nature for Life Rally on Facebook and visit Victoria National Parks Association website vnpa.org.au forward slash rally. VNPA is a 3CR supporter. Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. This year's delicious Radical Radio wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. The Bolivian President Eva Morales of the Movement Towards Socialism Party was forced to resign on Sunday the 9th of November following three weeks of protests which following the disputed October 20th presidential election. He's now in exile in Mexico, but already his supporters have been attacked and killed. To understand the present and the immediate future for the people of Bolivia, we need to understand the past. And the person I invited to do this is activist, author and journalist Fred Fuentes. So begin, Fred, with the recent history of the landlocked country of Bolivia, located in Western Central South America. I think in order to understand Evo Morales' presidency, there are probably two important factors to take into consideration. The first is that he was elected in 2005, essentially since 1985. Bolivia had been ruled by a set of neoliberal parties, not much unlike much of the world where two or three parties essentially just shared power amongst themselves, uh, implementing anti-poor, pro-austerity policies. What that meant was that during that period, even though in Bolivia it was defined as the return to democracy because for much of the, the decades prior to that, what we had seen was military governments or unelected governments in, in power. During this sort of d- democratic period, the large majority of Bolivian population was largely excluded from politics and had governments that were ruling against their interests. This led to the emergence of a number of really important social movements over that time, uh, in particular indigenous movements, but not exclusively, which would then really just sort of erupt onto the streets at the 
start of the century. And most famously, perhaps, with the water war in Cochabamba, where the uh, government tried to privatise the water there, leading to mass uprising. And then in 2003, another mass uprising that led to the uh, resignation of the president over the question of gas, and then a further uprising in 2005, uh, which also led to, once again, resignation of the president, again over the question of who should control Bolivia's gas, uh, and the question of a part of the discussion being also about rewriting the entire constitution to create a, a different Bolivia. That resignation in 2005 paves the way for the elections uh, where Eva Morales, a representative of a political party whose origins lies in the coming together of a number of these social movements that had emerged in the 80s, 90s and played a critical role in these uprisings in 2000, runs as presidential candidate uh, and ends up winning an historic vote, as you said, becoming the first Indigenous president of the country and winning with more than 50% of the vote, something that was basically unheard of in Bolivian politics. That's the first factor, these sort of protests against the undemocratic parties that had ruled for 30 years implementing anti-Indigenous, anti-poor politics. Second important factor is, is really is that 500 years of ongoing Indigenous struggle. Whilst in Bolivian history there had been other important revolts, rebellions, even even revolutions, here for the first time in, in Bolivian society it was Indigenous people who were at the, the forefront of that struggle, including and up to the, the, the leaders of, of that movement, of which Evo was just one, but who would sort of consolidate his sort of role as, as an important figure in, in this movement once he was elected as president. What was his election platform? Evo Morales' election platform was largely based on collecting the demands of the social movements that existed at the, at the time. So really, the two key demands, the, the overarching demands, the, the key focus of the protest and the key focus of Evo's platform was nationalisation of the gas, it's seen really as an expression of the need for Bolivia, who for so long had exported its wealth for other countries to enrich themselves, to keep that wealth within the country so that the country itself, and in particular the poorest in the country, could begin to lift themselves out of poverty. So that was really the main economic plan, a re- regaining control over the economy, starting with gas as the, the key factor in the Bolivian economy. And secondly, a constituent assembly, uh, that is uh, electing a body representative of Bolivian society to rewrite a new constitution that would for the first time incorporate indigenous people into the constitution that would enshrine control over natural resources and many other factors that that would later come up in the discussions like for instance you know not just enshrining human rights but also the rights of mother earth uh, into that constitution so the, the nationalization of gas constituent assembly two key demands of those protests that i mentioned those uprisings that i mentioned would then become the central planks of Morales' election campaign. That would then also be combined with a whole series of sectoral negotiations with different movements. And so Evo would spend a lot of time, or the movement towards socialism would spend a lot of time going to its different sections of its base, whether that be informal traders in the rebellious city of El Alto, whether that be cooperative miners from Potosí, whether that be coca growers in the Chapare, which is where Eva Morales himself comes from, and seeking out what were the policies of those different social movements that have been largely uh, relegated, largely uh, uh, marginalised by previous governments, and seeking out to see how, what sort of policies could be implemented, part of this, this the platform that Eva Morales ran on. Was there nevertheless a divide between the, the cities and the rural areas? 
certainly the MAS itself emerges as a largely a rural party, an indigenous rural party. It, it has certain influence into certain cities, particularly as the movement begins to grow, and particularly in those cities that are more heavily indigenous, uh, such as El Alto. But there had always been a certain uh, hesitancy, certainly from the sort of more mestizo or, or mixed race or even white middle class in the cities. That sort of hesitation sort of in some ways is overcome through this sort of process of rebellion and protest that occurs at the start of the century and this sort of sense that actually the only one that can bring some level of stability to this country is the movement towards socialism, who, you know, had not a program that was, you know, far from being a, a program for revolutionary communism or anything like that, but rather was ex beginning to express a sentiment that had had its origins in indigenous movements, but was now becoming to permeate for the rest of society. So that's why it was able to achieve in, you know, numerous elections over 50% of the vote. But as I said, that relationship with particularly urban middle class sectors who traditionally had benefited from having direct access to the state, who, do, who basically had also benefited from the way that indigenous people were treated in society, you know, always had a certain level of scepticism and being able to maintain that alliance that the, the mass, the movement towards socialism had built with the middle classes was always a very tricky thing and, and that had uh, ebbs and flows or st strong points and weak points throughout Morales' tenure in government. Can you talk about the emphasis on Mother Earth? Well, this is obviously an important part of some of the indigenous protests and was certainly for a section of the indigenous movement a really key part of what they want to have enshrined in the constitution. That is a recognition that you know, whatever we do today, it has an impact on Mother Earth and that has an impact not just for people today but for, for generations to come. Of course, there was general agreement on the broad idea of what this meant, but then having to implement that in a country where, on the one hand, you have environmental questions and the fact that it's a country that, you know, has a variety of different uh, ecosystems that, that exist there that have, but also has a situation where it has a large section of its population that at the time of Eva Morales' election continued to live in poverty, has an, had an economy that was extremely dependent, in fact, almost solely dependent on being able to extract natural resources from the environment uh, in order to maintain its economy. All of these, of course, would lead to contradictions or debates over how best to implement this concept of uh, defending the rights of, of Mother Earth. But I can imagine, though, that the ruling class who'd been controlling Bolivia for eons weren't happy. How did he overcome that? Well, the reality is that Evo Morales or the movement towards socialism had to overcome it through through two ways. Firstly was ensuring, you know, building this alliance, as I said, starting with its core of the different indigenous rural organisations, then reaching out to other social movements um, that were not part of that traditional core of campesino-based, uh, peasant-based movements, so, for instance, cooperative miners, formal traders in El Alto, and then finally breaching out even further to build an alliance with sections of the middle class in order to secure, you know, over 50% of the vote and be able to win in, in elections. That, that was the first part of it. But, you know, the right wing in Bolivia and Latin America and arguably everywhere, you know, has never really cared too much about democracy, certainly when it doesn't suit their interests. So whilst Evo Morales was able and his party were able to continue to win numerous elections, the right, fearing that they were unable to, to win by the ballot box, 
began to organise uh, in order to try to f- overthrow uh, Evo Morales. What it used in the first first period of the Evo Morales government, largely basically up until about 2008-2009, was to try to cohere a regionalist sentiment in the east of Bolivia. The lowlands of Bolivia tends to be more wealthier, more whiter. In Santa Cruz, a, a large concentration of, of white middle-class uh, sections. It's also where a lot of the, the gas is located. Of course, it's also many indigenous, small indigenous nations that are, in, are located in, in, in the east of Bolivia as well. But the aim was to cohere this sort of regional sentiment to sort of scare people into this idea that the, you know, the indigenous government from the west was basically going to come and take over their sort of lifestyle and, and what they had become accustomed to in the east in order to build a, 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 an insurrectional movement to overthrow Eva Morales. And so what we saw 2008-2009 was the opposition using a combination of trying to use a recall referendum to get Eva Morales deposed by the ballot box whilst at the same time also launching a, 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 an insurrectional offensive which saw it take over numerous state institutions, start to burn them down, essentially creating two Bolivias where Evo Morales and his government couldn't even land in the east of, east of Bolivia because of the huge protests. This intersected them with an attempt at a, at a military coup where all of a sudden certain sections of the Bolivian military turned off their phones to Evo Morales when, when Evo was trying to get a sense of what was happening on, on the ground. And his coup attempt could, in the end, ultimately only be defeated by the actual street mobilizations of the movement towards socialism's base of the social movements, threatening to basically march into Santa Cruz uh, and to put a, put a, to quell this sort of uh, insurrectional uprising or reactionary uprising that was occurring. So the right have used all sorts of tactics, as I said, from elections to, to attempted insurrections to try to get rid of, rid of Eva Morales. And in many ways, what, what we're seeing now is, is just a continuation of that. Over those years, he was in power. Was the U.S. interfering as well? It's been clearly proven that for many years now, the the, the U.S. and this precedes really the the intervention of sorry the election of Evo Morales. I mean, for for a long time, really under the guise of so-called war on drugs, uh, the U.S. through its uh, drug enforcement agency, the DEA, has had direct involvement in Bolivia. There's also you know numerous. Um, accounts all information that's readily available now on the internet due to freedom of information requests of uh, the way the US aid was being used in, in certain indigenous communities in order to divide uh, indigenous communities and build more conservative indigenous organizations as a, a bulwark against the more more radical ones. And so all, all of this predates Eva Morales. We then also saw the direct intervention of US embassy in the 2002 elections, which saw polls uh, indicating that Evo had a chance of winning those elections back then, uh, where the US, base, US ambassador basically came out threatening the country, saying that you know were the country to vote for Evo Morales, that the US would cut off its support and aid for for Bolivia. Um, at the time, Evo didn't win; he would go on to win in 2005. But that that sort of uh, both public and uh, hidden subversion has, has always existed, so much so that in the midst of this sort of coup attempt that I mentioned in 2008-2009, the U.S. ambassador was expelled from Bolivia precisely because because of that role. Uh, what we've also seen is the Bolivian government trying to uh, cut off the, 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 the way that the, the, that the U.S. government can, can interfere. So obviously I mentioned the expulsion of the U.S. ambassador. should also be mentioned that much of the... the, the the military that was responsible for presidential security were largely trained, uh, aided by the U.S. Uh, those, were, those were replaced with, with troops who weren't with 
didn't have those direct ties to, to the U.S. military. So this, this is nothing new in Bolivian history, and, and it's continued to, to, to occur up, up until today through, through numerous different manners. Well, over those 14 years he was in power, how did the economy fare? Bolivia's economy has basically been the best performing economy uh, in South America. What we've seen is a steady growth in a country, but more importantly than just growth is wealth redistribution. So we've seen in a country of about 9 million, 1 million people essentially being lifted out of the, you know, what is generally referred to in social economic terms of the lower classes and in, into the middle classes. It's been a huge reduction uh, in poverty, in particular of extreme poverty. Of course, it hasn't been completely eradicated. But what we've seen is through a policy of essentially nationalising control over the gas resources. That, that doesn't mean refusing to work with any transnationals. Transnationals continue to operate in the gas industry, but the key thing is what the Bolivian government has said is that we control the gas, we control what happens to the gas, we control what happens to the profits of the gas. Any transnationals who want to come and work with us to make that happen are welcome to do so. Um, and through that process, they've been able to maintain that wealth in the country, make that use that wealth to recirculate, particularly through uh, social programs dedicated towards the poor, through the provisions of healthcare and education, to massively expand the internal market that in, in turn has then you know, helped to uh, stimulate other economies, particularly the, the informal sector, which is such a huge sector in, in Bolivia's economy, particularly in terms of the number of people that, that it employs. All of this has created a, a, a booming economy that, you know, even even in the context of the most recent, well, firstly in the context of the downturn with the commodity prices uh, a few years ago, was able to come through that largely unscathed, uh, although certainly it, it suffered a bit through that. And even through the most recent years of, of economic global economic downturn, Bolivia still continued to be high performer, 4% growth, you know, which most, you know, any country in the world would be envious of, of having the kind of, uh, economic statistics that, that Bolivia has shown, as I said, not just in terms of economic growth, but also poverty alleviation. Well, that brings us up to 2019 elections. Were dirty tricks expected? Well, dirty tricks were always going to be expected in the elections because these elections were hotly disputed. They're hotly disputed, arguably, for, for three reasons, the two of them that predate the election and one on the election itself. The two reasons that predated is, as I said, Morales has always maintained a... There's always been a section of Bolivian society, largely the old traditional political elites who had governed Bolivia uninterruptedly for, for a couple of decades until the arrival of the movement towards socialism. That section of society, those political parties have constantly been fighting to get political power back. So, of course, they were going to be seeing these elections as an opportunity to return to power. And secondly, it was also going to be hotly disputed because it was much discussion and debate about whether Evo Morales should be allowed to stand in these elections. According to the new constitution, the term limits, there are, there are term limits in place. That is that you're only allowed to stand for re-election twice, to stand for election twice. Evo Morales had already done that. 2016, he had gone, he had initiated, or a referendum was initiated to remove that restriction from the constitution so that any elected official could run for more than two terms. That referendum was narrowly defeated, 49-51. But the following year, in 2017, the Constitutional Court ruled that as the Bolivian Constitution has an article that says none of its articles can be in contraventions to international conventions, and as the particular restrictions on allowing people to run for elections is in violation of certain international conventions, that therefore that article was unconstitutional, and therefore it was Evo Morales' and any other elected official's right 
to be able to restand for consecutive uh, mandates beyond just those two that was limited, the limit on the existing constitution. So, of course, this, this was hotly disputed. Many felt that this was an incorrect ruling by the Constitutional Tribunal. Others, others agreed with it, but that was always going to be a contentious point in these elections. And then, of course, the third one was the, in the lead-up to the elections and then on the election day was the, the cries of fraud over the election result. So all of this, you know, sort of acted as a bit of a powder keg for the protest that would then follow the, the elections after October 20. Were they very violent? Well, what we saw was a very clear uh, attempt by these protests to seek to destabilise Eva Morales and do what they were once again unable to do in the ballot box, and that is uh, overthrow the, the Morales government. Uh, the election's result on, of, of the October 20 elections showed that Eva Morales won roughly 47 point something percent of the vote, uh, and he also defeated his nearest rival by more than 10 percent. Under the Bolivian constitution, if a candidate gets over 40% and defeats his nearest rival by more than 10%, they're automatically elected and there's no need for, for a second round. So having lost the elections and despite the claims of fraud, having been unable to actually present any evidence of fraud, the opposition decided that this was the time really uh, to really push on, building on the sort of opposition sentiment that had been building uh, in order to see if they could get rid of Eva Morales. And what we saw was from October 20 until his, his resignation some 20 days later uh, was a, a mass escalation of, of those protests, but also a, a violent escalation of those protests. And what we saw in the days prior to Eva Morales being forced to step down was uh, attacks on the houses of not just members of the, of the movement towards socialism, but of their family members who were kidnapped, uh, houses burnt down, uh, all of this leading to, combined with a, a mutiny by the police calling for Ebo to step down, and then finally the, the, the military also coming out publicly to say Ebo Morales had to step down, that uh, Ebo, together with his vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, and a number of other uh, mass politicians, saying that, look, we, you know, basically we, you know, we, we, we resign because we, we, want to, we want to maintain the safety of our family members. We want to maintain the physical integrity of our family members. You know, we hope that by us resigning that some level of peace can, can be restored to the country and that our, our family members can be released, particularly those that have been kidnapped or whose houses have, have been threatened with we've been burning down. So what we saw was basically a, a rapid, rapid escalation of what was initially supposedly protests for new elections, which Eva Morales had agreed to, but that all basically then became a, an insurrectionist movement to remove Bolivia's first indigenous president, an insurrectionist movement largely led by dark right-wing forces in the country, those very same forces that for 14 years had been fighting to get rid of Eva Morales and whose uh, discourse continues to be precisely that now that they're in power, that they're not in power because of any specific electoral issue or any specific problems with the last elections, but as they clearly state, we're in power to reverse or to, to, to put an end to 14 years of what they saw as what was wrong. And so what we're trying to, what we're seeing now is a, a coup government really trying to come to power on the back of a violent uh, movement, on the back of uh, a violent insurrection in order to try to wind back those, those gains that have been made in the last 14 years. Just looking at the role of the military and the police, had they in the past supported him? The government has always had a, perhaps a more, not conflictive, but certainly not, not a harmonious relationship with, with the police. 
police has always been difficult to deal with. There's been high levels of, of corruption in the police and the government has taken certain measures that has basically taken away some of the rights that police previously had. That hadn't as yet really been expressed in mass protests, although there have been there had been previous protests uh, by sections of, of the police uh, against the government, but perhaps not quite to the scale as what we saw in, in the days leading up to when he was forced to, to step down. One example of that is that the police used to be responsible essentially for the department that handed out driver's license, ID cards, things like that, which obviously was both an important revenue raiser for the police, uh, but also a big source of corruption of how they were able to use that control that they had over ID cards and driver's license to enrich themselves. The government took that out of the hands of the police and put it into the hands of of civilians. It was also one of the first things that the coup government did once it came into power, which was give that back to the police in order to be able to continue that corruption that occurred in, in that section. With the military, as I said, there had been the previous uh, attempt by at least a section of the military high command to enact a coup uh, against Evo Morales. Uh, apart from that, one had got the sense that there was largely at least a agreement to respect the constitutional order, whether the, the military agreed with everything that Evo Morales was doing. There hadn't been much indications of, of that one way or the other, but that certainly seemed to be an indication that there was a general respect for the constitutional order, of course, that was all thrown out on the day that he was forced to resign when the military break in with the constitution, which states that he can't play any role in, in politics, came out to say that the president uh, should, should resign even though his constitutional mandate doesn't finish until January of next year. Well, Morales has gone to Mexico in exile. What about his supporters he's left behind? Is there any danger that there'll be payback for them? Well, the payback, unfortunately, has already begun. We, we saw, for instance, in protests by... Uh, the coca growers unions trying to get in, in, in Cochabamba. Just two days ago, there was a protest that was massacred. There was nine deaths. At least so far, the death toll is, is nine, uh, just from that one single protest. The death toll overall is at about, stands at about 23, with something like 715 injured and many hundreds that have been detained as well. And what we're seeing is really a, a coup government under the guise of being an interim government whose only constitutional mandate uh, if it is to be accepted to be a constitutional government, is to call elections within 90 days, who are using the, this, this sort of space to basically try to see how they can politically wipe out the movement towards socialism as any kind of political force. So along with what I've said about the, the deaths, the injuries, the, the, the arrests that have occurred, we've seen you know, ministers in, this, in the new coup government who have come out on TV saying, look, we have a public list of movement towards socialism deputies and senators who we are accusing of sedition and who we are going to round up and we're going to set up a special prosecutor's body in order to, to, to arrest, detain and, and, and put these people in jail. You know, these are the kind of actions that are that are occurring right now. There's also talk about whether the, the the party as a whole will be banned, or whether certain candidates will be banned from from being able to run. Of course, the coup government has said that there's no chance that even Morales will be able to stand in these in any new elections. And many of many of their spokespeople have gone as far as to say that there's no chance that Alvaro Garcia Linera, his vice president, would um, would be able to stand, even though there's no law. Uh, saying that he he wouldn't be able to stand. Uh, the, the only the term mandate only goes for the same position. So president for a president, not a there's nothing to say that a vice president couldn't stand after a president had had stood in uh, had, had stood in had been in power for two terms. So we're already seeing you know what the opposition is trying to do is basically change the facts on the ground so that by the time any new elections are are, are held and as of yet no even though we're 
more than a week into this coup government, no date has been set for or even mentioned for for these elections. Uh, what we're seeing is, a, is really is an attempt to ensure that by the time of this election day comes around, that the movement towards socialism, you know, has no chance of, of being able to win because it, its candidates are barred from running, its, its leaders are in prison or on the run or in exile, and its supporters have basically been, you know, scared into submission, you know, through the violence that's been inflicted on the protests that are on the streets now, uh, who are, you know, demanding that, you know, just as, as even Morales has said, that if you think that there is a, you know, problem with these elections, even though no evident, actual hard evidence of fraud has been put forward, well then let's go to a new election. The only way out of this crisis is through the constitution that the people voted on. The constitution says that Eva Morales is president until January 2020, and that if people disagree with the elections, let's have a new election to decide who the president is once his term finishes then. Finally, Fred, what does this mean for the rest of, of Latin America, South America, the left countries or left-leaning countries in Latin America? Well, certainly, you know, it's a, it's a very dark days for, for democracy in Latin America where you see a, a pres, you know, an indigenous president pushed out of office, told to resign by the military, where you see a president and, you know, a number of others of his government forced into exile. I mean, it's really, unfortunately, very reminiscent of the, the dark days of the military dictatorships of, of the 70s. This sends a very, very ominous signal for the rest of the region in a period where the region is in a bit of flux because having had uh, a sort of a revival of right-wing governments in the last year or so, a large particularly with the election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, in the last few years, sorry, so we've had the election of Jair Bolsonaro, but previously also the election of Mauricio Macri uh, in Argentina. We've seen a, a, a reflux in that movement, so what we're seeing now is that in Argentina, just a, a month ago, the centre-left forces uh, that are identified with Kirchnerism, uh, in this case, um, Anibal Fernandez being elected to the presidency, uh, sorry, Alberto Fernandez being elected to the presidency with Cristina Kirchner de Fernandez as, as his vice president, so a return of the centre-left of power. We also see the, the protests that have been occurring in Chile, Ecuador, against uh, right-wing governments or uh, centre-right governments. So the region is in a bit of flux and seeing, firstly, a, seeing a, a, a government overthrown in such a manner you know, certainly sends a, a very dangerous, a very dark signal to, to the rest of the continent. So one hopes that the situation can be resolved there, certainly through a means that sees the constitutional order restated uh, and sees the ability for, you know, doesn't it see the right uh, get away with, you know, what, what they would like to do. I think certainly, you know, what we're seeing today in Bolivia is very much what would occur in Venezuela tomorrow uh, were somehow the right able to uh, dislodge Maduro from power. This sort of vicious witch hunt of left forces uh, in order to basically ensure that the left can never get get back into power in, in these countries. So I think it's it's dangerous situation. There's also it's also in the context, as I said, of mass protests that occur in, in general around the in the continent. Most recently in Ecuador, ongoing uh, there in Ecuador against IMF policies. In Chile now for a new constitution, something that Bolivians had four four and won. The new election of a left government in Argentina. All of these things mean that it's a, it's a process in flux, and we'll see how those different factors also have their influence and play out in in Bolivian politics as well. And many thanks to activist, journalist, and writer Fred Fuentes for his talk on the situation in Bolivia, which doesn't look very good at all at the moment. 
it's coming up to 25 minutes to 6 o'clock. Let's hear from some community announcements. Swing down to the Abbotsford Convent for a fundraiser in the newly opened space, The Laundry. Support the Boat in an exciting night featuring music from Nina Rose, Melbourne Scottish Fiddle Club, Iyaki Vallejo, Eni Gruner, Yuvalashka, Pascal Latra, The Ice Halos and a silent auction with donations from local supporting businesses. Food and drinks available. The Boat's 40th birthday fundraiser, 7.30pm Saturday, 30th of November at the Laundry Abbotsford Convent. For details and tickets, visit the Boat's website, boite.com.au. The Boat, a proud 3CR supporter. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, Helping, giving us a chance to do this It's really good, you know It's been going for a while now Hopefully it goes, it keeps going You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this And um, get our voice out there as prisoners We can't blame everything on the external So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor Because real power comes from here And it comes from family if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 3CR are selling Kofia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And finally, on Tuesday home time for this week, Joan Coxidge, social activist. Here we are again, surrounded by Christmas crap and messages of goodwill, but not for those at the bottom of the heap. Infuriating when you see what the top CEO mobsters are getting as they cream off the system. A reminder of the old adage, as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. The average full-time wage earner earns roughly... per week and has to pay exorbitant rent, can't afford a house, the very occasional meal out, various rates that keep going up and up, and a heap of other things if she, he has children. 
unemployment and underemployment are wickedly high, like wage theft, while workers' paychecks remain stagnant. Australia's top ten corporate thieves make 270 times the amount of the average full-time Aussie worker, and as for those Australians on New Start and the pension, God help them. Leading the pack is Qantas chief Alan Joyce, who pocketed a staggering 23,876,351 last year. A half head behind him is Macquarie Group CEO Nicholas Moore, with 23.86 million in his kick. Some near the bottom of the ten only managed to garner a mere 13,246,088 dollars. And then there's the bonuses for what? Sacking workers to increase the bottom line? To describe them as having a sense of entitlement doesn't even come close. Never have we needed a stronger, more vigorous trade union movement than we do right now. Instead, they're about to be belted over the head with some appalling fascist-style legislation. What luck for rulers that men do not think said Adolf Hitler, indeed. The same huge divide exists between public and private schools where inequality begins. A survey found that between 2013 and 2017, four private schools spent $100 million each on capital works, while in the same period, 1,300 state schools had been waiting for up to 15 years for urgent repairs to their buildings. Back in 1935, one of the most influential Marxist playwrights of the 20th century, Bertolt Brecht, described fascism as an integral part of capitalism. Those who are against fascism without being against capitalism are like people who want to eat veal without slaughtering the calf, he said. They're happy to eat the calf, but can't stand the sight of blood. Fascism and war are not natural disasters, but are launched by the ruling class to control everyone else. Not surprisingly, Brecht's plays were banned in the early 1930s, so he moved to California, where he attracted the attention of the House Un-American Activities Committee, and then he moved to Switzerland before relocating to East Berlin in 1949, where he ran a theatre company, the Berliner Ensemble. The media here infuriate me, the whole bloody lot of them, and that includes our ABC, a pale shadow of its former self, when not so long ago, journos were prepared to take on the powerful. A few of them were anyway. And yes, I'm genuinely sorry to hear that the ABC's budget's been cut yet again. So why allow so many coalition bastards onto their programs? And if they must, demand answers to their questions, when some interviewers don't seem to know what questions to ask in the first place. For example... An ABC news item reported that Sweden had dropped its rape allegation against Julian Assange, inferring it was because of the time factor. When Sweden's always been a stalking horse for the US government and on three occasions has been forced to shelve its investigation for lack of evidence, confirming that claims of rape or sexual assault are a politically motivated fraud. Now that the US and Britain have Julian where they want him, in prison or on the cusp of being extradited to the US, they can say, thank you, Sweden, for smearing him and undermining public support for his freedom. Now you can bugger off because we no longer need you. Assange will be the first publisher ever charged under that act 
and sets an ominous precedent for any media outlet which dares to publicise American atrocities anywhere, any time. To underpin the level of corruption, Trump has just issued full pardons for three US soldiers convicted of serious war crimes relating to their military service. The same president who blocked the International Criminal Court's investigations into war crimes in Afghanistan. We are indeed a very sick society. And now we learn that the presiding judge in Julian's extradition proceedings, Lady Emma Arbuthnot, a name with Gilbert and Sullivan overtones, is embroiled in a massive conflict of interest and will be turning over certain courtroom proceedings to another judge and yet could still remain the supervising legal figure which all seems outrageous. Her husband, Lord Arbuthnot of Edrum, honest to God, you couldn't invent a name like that, is a former British Defence Minister with financial links to the British military establishment, including institutions and individuals named by WikiLeaks. Lady A has also received gifts, including from a military and cyber security company exposed by WikiLeaks. There's even more about this ghastly family. Lady Emma's son, Alexander, is the vice president, vice is the right word in this context, and cybersecurity advisor of a firm heavily invested in a company founded by GCHQ, which is Britain's secret electronic spy agency, and MI5, that's equivalent to our ASIO, which, of course, is diametrically opposed to everything WikiLeaks stands for. Alexander's employer, the private equity firm Vitruvian Partners, has a multi-million pound investment in another cybersecurity company, which is also staffed by officials directly recruited from the U.S. National Security Agency and the CIA. To call this a conflict of interest is like calling Adolf Hitler a small-time crook. But the corruption of the case against Julian Assange goes on and on, making it impossible that he will ever get a fair trial, and even that he will survive. And as I've previously mentioned, there were five American officials in Westminster's Magistrates Court during the extradition hearing quite blatantly giving instructions to the prosecuting QC in full view of everyone in that court. And our media haven't bothered reporting one word of this shocking situation. On the progressive side of British politics is Jeremy Corbyn, who was remorselessly attacked by the British media, even by the so-called progressive elements. He's just released Labour's election manifesto, an ambition to conduct a roots and branch reform of Britain's arms export regime so ministers can never again turn a blind eye to British-made weapons being used to target civilians. A large part of it deals with human rights abuses in the Middle East. To reform the international rules-based order to get some accountability, such as the bombing of hospitals, the illegal blockade of the Gaza Strip, I say good luck to him on that one, and the use of rape as a weapon of war, all of which, if implemented, could help stabilise the region. Jeremy Corbyn quite reasonably asks, ISIS hasn't come from nowhere. ISIS isn't funded by nobody. ISIS didn't sell its oil to no one. ISIS doesn't receive its arms from nowhere. Questions about arms sale to countries all around the Gulf. Questions about a banking system that allows oil money to go in and go out. And again, all I can say is the best of British luck, Jeremy Corbyn. While in the US of A, since 2001, 
Fighting in its so-called war on terror has cost $6.4 trillion and the loss of 800,000 lives, and that's just in America, which doesn't even come close to how ruinous wars are. And these same warmongers reckon there's no money for schools, for the homeless, for hospitals, and yet there's always money for war and for armaments. A full reckoning of the cost has to include the millions killed, displaced, and the wreckage left behind in so many countries, factors rarely, if ever, mentioned when decisions are made. Do wars bring security or safety? No, they do the opposite, creating more anger and desperation. But wars are business. Big, big business. Bolivia, like nearly all of Latin America, is in turmoil after President Evo Morales was deposed in a US-run coup d'etat, forcing him into exile. Politicians and journalists have been swiftly rounded up while the security services were equally swiftly given exoneration in advance for any crimes they might commit. A time when people look to international human rights organisations for an honest assessment, but not Human Rights Watch, which supported the brutality and refused to use the word coup, saying that Morales was an out-of-touch strongman and had resigned. The new self-declared Bolivian president, Jeanine Anez, whose party only received 4% of the vote in last month's election, has already expelled hundreds of Cuban doctors, broken ties with Venezuela and pulled Bolivia out of multiple international organisations and treaties and described the indigenous majority as satanic who should be cast out of the cities and sent to live in the desert. Closer to home, Bougainville's Panguna gold and copper mine is back in the news after an application for exploration by former Rio Tinto subsidiary Bougainville Copper Limited, which has an appalling track record both environmentally and in its treatment of the indigenous community. When peaceful protests were ignored, this is a number of years ago, the locals resorted to sabotage which brought in the big guns. The Papua New Guinea government staged a military-led counterinsurgency on behalf of the mining company and the Australian government using local SUGS an action that triggered a bitter civil war that saw more than 20,000 killed and massive destruction of Bougainsville infrastructure. It was the most serious conflict in the South Pacific since World War II. In recent years, there have been several attempts to reopen this lucrative mine, claiming local support when there is still strong opposition from locals with memories. And when you look at the latest line-up of go-getters sniffing around Bougainville to make a quick buck, you can only hope Bougainvillians currently voting in an historic referendum for independence for Papua New Guinea will be successful. The locals have waited 19 years for such a vote, and even if they overwhelmingly vote for independence, the referendum is non-binding, with the final say resting with MPs in the PNG Parliament, which doesn't augur well for a peaceful outcome. While on the other side of the world, the impeachment hearings of Donald Trump roll on in the name of, quote, upholding democracy and the rule of law, end of quote. Rather hollow claims when you look at Washington's track record. U.S. imperialism has never abided by international or constitutional law. Imperialist diplomacy is conducted by gangsters who routinely make offers to leaders they dare not refuse. Impeaching a U.S. president for allegedly placing strings on foreign aid seems rather selective, as all U.S. aid comes with strings attached. 
neither side questions the propriety of delivering lethal military aid to countries fighting civil war, wars resulting from US coups. Imperialism, as the political analyst Michael Parenti writes, sees only two types of countries beyond its borders, satellites or vassal states that throw themselves open to free market neoliberal exploitation, that's us, and enemies or potential enemies that do not, preferring one form or another of economic nationalism designed to protect their domestic markets, resources, labour and currency. And now we have a Chinese spying a rerun of the Petrov affair, the name of a married Russian couple who worked in the Soviet embassy in Canberra in 1954. Vladimir, a nasty drunk, made a deal with ASIO without telling his wife that he was part of a Russian communist spy network and wanted protection to become an Australian citizen. A few days later, Menzies announced Petrov's defection in Parliament and eventually won an unwinnable election. The Petrov affair came after the High Court's rejection of the Communist Party Dissolution Act of 1950 and the People's rejection of the 1951 proposal to ban the Communist Party. In 1954-55, the Petrov Commission failed to unearth one spy or traitor. And if you substitute China for Russia, it's a case of here we go again. But it's the end of the year. And I reckon we all need a break. So spend time with your friends, share a bottle of wine or two, along with reading a book or two, and take care on our crazy roads. Next year will be an important one, and we need you, every single one of you. So good afternoon and good luck. And thanks to Joan Coxidge for the the many talks that she's given over the year for Tuesday Home Time. And just look what she said there about having a bottle or two of wine with friends. Such a good idea. Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. Out on the patio. This year's delicious Radical Radio wines are generously sponsored by Breast Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. Now next Tuesday is the 3rd of December and I won't be here that day because it's International Disability Day and it's a special broadcast for 12 hours here on 3CR. Tune in to Power from the Margins, 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. But before I go, do you remember this event on Thursday? 
On Thursday 28th of November at 12pm, environment groups and communities from across Victoria will peacefully rally together at Parliament to call for urgent action for our natural world. After five years of the Andrews government, nature deserves more, especially in the face of climate change. Victorians need new and better funded national parks, stronger nature laws and better protection for our threatened forests, rivers, beaches, oceans and native plants and animals. We need real action for our natural places and wildlife now. Join in the Nature for Life rally. Bring a sign to highlight the natural places you love that deserve better protection. See you on Parliament Steps, Thursday 28th of November at 12pm. Look for Nature for Life rally on Facebook and visit Victoria National Parks Association website vnpa.org.au forward slash rally. VNPA is a 3CR supporter. And that is it for me for today. As I said, I won't be here next Tuesday, but I'll be back on the 10th of December. But do stay tuned for Done By Law. We'll be here very shortly after a song by Chris Wilson. <laughs> 